This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Christine Courtney, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much. Um, Christine is married the very beloved author, Bryce Courtney, in 2011, and today she continues to champion her late husband's amazing literary legacy. This year marks the 30th anniversary of Bryce's most famous novel, The Power of One, and Christine is here to talk about its enduring impact on ongoing relevance. I mean, oh my goodness, it is... He is a person in himself. Each book is a book in itself, isn't it? Everything about him was big. Everything about him was big. He dreamed big, he wrote big, he lived big and hopefully his legacy will remain big, which is, of course, what we would all want. 21 books in 23 years is a huge output. He really, from 50, gave his life to his long-held dream to write and I wished he'd in some ways lived a bit more, but he lived to write. Yeah, yeah. He died early. How old was he? When 79. He that is he, early. So. It's early for someone like Bryce who'd done multiple marathons and could outrun any of us um, in any day. Um, unfortunately, he had a late diagnosis of stomach cancer. I think if he'd had been diagnosed early, he would have licked it. Yeah. And um, his mother lived into her 90s. He had good genes and I always used to say, you'll outlive all of us. I really thought he might crack on to his early 90s. He was very disappointed. He said, I would have really loved to have got to 80 and I really would love to have written another book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He, um, Mm. he's, to me, um, he is a figure um, in Australian literature that has been formative for me. When I started working, and it probably was about 30 years ago when I started as a bookseller on the shop floor, um, and he has always been in my career. He mm. has always been in my space. Uh, and I met him several times over the years. Um, and I felt when I was reflecting on our conversation today and thinking about what we're going to talk about, I thought about him a lot. And I felt that very he was one of the first authors that I knew, anyhow, that really thought it was important to connect with readers. Yes, that's true. He used to often say that the reader was the fourth protagonist in that they brought a lot to the book that they were reading. He trusted their imagination, their intuition, their sense of what made a good story and he really respected the readers and was very humbled that each year they bought his books. He was quite nervous that the next one they mightn't like and an example of that was Sylvia, which was sort of outside his genre in some ways, in terms of the subject, very difficult book to write. He hated writing that book. Um, and he started Sylvia too, 
And then in March 2007, he said, I just am not getting there. Um, I'm really not enjoying it. The research isn't there. And I don't think my readers will forgive me a Sylvia too. Mm, isn't that interesting? I'm still thinking about connection with readers. Um, when I look at authors today, it is so easy to connect with readers because, well, much easier than it was because we have social media. So you can connect through Facebook like many I mean, a lot of our readers jump on and connect with, right, uh, a lot of our authors jump onto our Facebook page and connect with um, readers. Um, and, you know, there's all the other Twitter and Instagram and everything else. But he he was connecting by popping into bookstores, wasn't yes. he? Yes, he, he, really, he really did. And I'm sure you may have seen scenes of, you know, people down the block queuing up. He would sign books till he had to put his hand in a bucket of ice at night, if someone met him in a supermarket or on a plane or on a train, he would take their postal address and say, now let me send you a book. Mm. And he loved the connection with his readers. And um, he did make a big effort. You know, there were some other writers that he knew. They were a bit jealous of Bryce, but he made such an effort and he mm. had that empathy and he was interested in their lives as well as the mm. fact that they loved reading his books mm -hmm. and they would always tell them their stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, often as not, he'd end up talking at one of their charities or helping them out. He had an incredible generosity of spirit that was, was rare and I think some of that came from his own beginnings that were so tough. And um, tell me, what were his beginnings? Well, he was born in South Africa illegitimately um, to a woman who was very bright but didn't have the opportunities that women today have. Um, it was, she had a tough life um, and she couldn't really cope. He thinks that she had something like a nervous breakdown at some point and he and Rosemary, um, his elder sister, were put into an orphanage. She wasn't there for as long as Bryce was but that, I think that sense of abandonment and emotional deprivation did scar him throughout his life. There were some dark places that he went through from that experience. And I think he had a great need to be loved. Um, whether And he loved loving people and, mm. and pets and everything else. He poured his heart out. There were no filters. Mm. And I think a lot of it, you know, came from that. In some ways, I wonder if he even had, might sound amazing, but quite low self-esteem. Mm. And he'd sometimes get kicked around because he wouldn't always stand up for himself. And I used to find that a bit bewildering, but I think reflecting on it, I can understand perhaps it was that background where he felt some shame or some, I'm just, he used to say, I'm just old shitbag, mm -hmm. if you'll pardon me saying that. Mm. Mm. Uh, how did he get to Australia? From London. He went, he, after he left South Africa during the apartheid regime because he was treading on too many toes in terms of his helping black kids to read and and what he was saying. He went to London and was interested in being a journalist and it was there that he met Benita, uh, who became his, his wife and uh, the mother of his children. And then and Benita was an Australian, so they eventually came back oh, right. to Australia. Right. Um, I think it was in about 1953 or 54. Yeah. And he saw the big blue sky in Australia, which reminded him a lot of South Africa, and he said to himself, this will do. I mm. think 
I can make it here. This mm. is where I'd have my family. And he loved Australia. And he worked in advertising initially? He worked in advertising and did very well at it. He was started out in, as a copywriter and went on to own his own agency and got lots of awards and got offers to work around the world, including New York and London. Um, and much to Benita's dismay, she told me, he he never went on uh, and took up the job in London because she loved art and she would have adored for them to have lived in London. But he loved Australia. He'd go down the beach every morning and go for a run and mm. um, he just loved everything about it, even though he was an African to his bootstraps. And if something was really difficult or I'd be struggling with something and I'd say, I just don't know what to do. And he'd say, darling, remember, I'm an African. And his soul sang from, and he could always feel the dust in his nostrils. Mm, it's beautiful. But he didn't want to go back there. We were once there together in November 2010 when he was quite sick, but we didn't know that he he had cancer and we saw some of his relatives and it was a special time to share together. And I always remember actually there was a, a waiter in the hotel in Cape Town and Bryce was as ever chatting to him about his life and his worries and um, the waiter said, and what do you do? And he said, I'm a writer. And he said, oh, what have you written? And he said, the power of one. You might have heard of that. And the fellow dropped to his knees and kissed his hand. Oh. But I said, do you, do you want to live back here? You know, we can live here. Let's mm. go home. And he said, my home is Australia. Let's mm. go home. Mm. Um, when did he start writing? Tell me how the transition went from uh, copywriting to actually writing a book. Well, I think he really was writing all his life. As a child in the orphanage, he used to tell these stories to get mm. out of getting beaten up and to get out of trouble. And I think they he had this imagination and storytelling got him out of the reality of where he was. But to answer your question, he really started writing seriously um, when he was in his, well, 50. Mm. Because before then, he was earning a living, providing for his family. And sadly, his son, Damon, was desperately ill with medically acquired AIDS and he spent the nights, look, the days at work and the nights looking after him. So he was able to concentrate on his writing mm. later. Mm. So The Power of One was the first. That was his first book. He always thought, and it was called The Tadpole Angel, as you would probably know, mm -hmm. um, he told everyone that he really thought it was a practice book and he'd have to write four books before anything had a chance of getting published. But he always had a big dream. He wasn't writing to starve and be in a garret. He thought he would get there. He just didn't know how or when. And he's always someone who didn't believe in luck. He thought the harder I work, the luckier I'll get. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it was uh, a bestseller within the first year of publication. Mm. I mean, I remember that very clearly. And uh, mm. do we know how many copies have sold? Well, I do get a few different figures on this one, but um, I, I think it's been documented that it's been about 8 million copies worldwide. But mm. it's published in everything from Hebrew, Hebrew to Finnish to mm. Mandarin, Spanish, Portuguese, Hungarian. Mm. Um, you, you can buy it pretty much everywhere but it was first published by Random House New York and it was came out there first um actually Bantam wasn't it Bantam New York 
and then um, the biggest markets would probably be for the book would have been New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Canada and the UK. Mm. Okay, so tell me a little bit about yourself and how your paths cross and how you met Bryce. Um, I met Bryce first in 1992 or 1993 at a writer's dinner and previous to that I'd had an adventure travel company called Australian Himalayan Expeditions and after I sold that company, I had a strategic planning and marketing company, mostly involving expeditions and uh, travel enterprises, like I worked on Bridge Climb and Ferrora Expeditions and a Washington-based company that took, took people to the International Space Station, but I also did some book publicity. And when I met Bryce, I was interested in getting some work from some of the writers at that dinner. And um, I just remember Bryce was jumping around the room like a grasshopper on steroids. He was so full of life. He was a terrible flirt. I don't know that I really liked him that much, but he was certainly compelling. I remember that. But we didn't get together until the middle of 2005. So what year did you meet? Oh, 1992. And I did work as his publicist for about two years, um, was really contracted out by Penguin. Um, I enjoyed that very much because he was so creative. He trusted you so much. If you had a good idea, he let you run with it. And, of course, he was such a great talent. How Mm. could you go wrong? And the Mm. books were so wonderful. But we didn't really spend any time together after that until about mid-2005. I'd been living out of Sydney and I came back. And we met and had lunch. And to my shock, he said you know, you and I would be very good together, Mm. which was not like a total surprise. Mm. And I didn't think it was a very good idea. Mm. But um, we did go to Antarctica. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, Together in late 2000, because I was working for Aurora Expeditions, an Antarctic cruising company, and we'd invited Bryce to be a writer in residence on board and to run a writing workshop in the middle of the Drake Passage in a Storm in Antarctica. Wow, that'd be fun. (laughs) And we had so much fun and he was so brilliant and I just loved that experience. But, you know, of course nothing happened then. Um, It was five years later and then we started living together on Christmas Day 2005 up in the Yarramalong Valley. Wow. Just myself and my Burmese cat. So he finally persuaded you. Yes, he did. And I didn't think it would work out. Yeah. And what book number was he up to then? 
He was starting, he, he'd written Sylvia and he was about to write, uh, let me get this right now, Sylvia, what was before the persimmon tree? Must have been Sylvia. And then he started Sylvia too and that he couldn't deal with it. Then he started the persimmon tree and he became very ill. He'd been feeding the chooks and he came up from the backyard puffing and I said, there's something wrong with your heart. And he said, I've got a book to write. And he went upstairs and kept writing. And I went upstairs. I said, have you got any other symptoms? He said, oh, yeah. I said, have you got any pain in your arms? Or He said, yeah. And I said, we're going to the cardiologist. And he said, I've got a book to write. And I said, do you want to be writing it in heaven? Yeah. And he had a heart valve replaced and said to the doctor that he'd be up back at writing in 10 days. Well, three months later, he started writing again. And as only Bryce could, he finished that book on August the 31st, 2007. And what was that book? The Persimmon Tree. The Persimmon Tree. Which was a wonderful book. Yeah, wow. Followed by Fishing for Stars. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about your relationship. I mean, it can't be easy um, living with a writer. In some ways, it's wonderful because you you're really living with a creative person and I love the creative process. I mean, I did my degree in literature at university. I love reading and books myself. So it was just a privilege to be with such a great writer and such a kind, generous, wonderful human being. However, you did have to be quite independent because when he was writing from, you know, 6.30 in the morning till sometimes 11, 12 at night. So he wrote straight through. He would he would have breaks, like walk yeah. the dog, feed the chooks, have a glass of wine at 5 o'clock. But the only thing that really stopped him writing was the rugby. Right. Um, <laughs> I was a rugby widow before I was a writing widow. Um, and I got to read the manuscripts first um, and I did helped him with a lot of editing. I always did a lot of research and a lot of the coordination. So in that sense, we were a team. I like to think I was able to support him. Yeah. And I also took care of a lot of the domestic stuff of life, the stuff of life, so that he was really free to write. And I spelled him rotten and he loved it. Mm. <laughs> it does. There is, there is something about being married or being, you know, having a partner who is an artist, isn't there? It's yeah. a, it is a different kind of partnership. Mm. Um, because even when they're not, not physically present, sometimes their mind's not present. It's such a, a, a correct observation. Um, and they need... Bryce was very gregarious when he was with people, but he would be just gestating a book and he needed a lot of alone time as well. Even in the garden, I often thought that was his laboratory where he'd be mm. cooking up a book, mm. thinking something through. And he would sometimes not be present. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly if something was going wrong with the book. Because like, it's like they're daydreaming all the time, isn't it? Yes. They're in another world because they're constructing a book and they're living those characters. Yes, that's right. Um, I think they must be very like a method actor that kind of lives we've, the part. We've, we've often spoken about that here. It, it is like method acting. You've got to, in a way, become that character, don't you? You've got to become those characters. Know what they have for breakfast, understand how they function, and I think in in the same way, Bryce had a similar sense of his readers. He could describe his readers. He would know who they were. He would know what what they were like. 
mm. in, in so many ways. But um, I never minded that. I felt very sorry for him, though, when a book was going wrong, like a timeline wasn't right, mm. like in Jack of Diamonds. Mm. Had to rewrite five chapters, um, which was just like pulling teeth and there was nothing creative or fun about it. It was just sheer hard yards. Remember he had a spinal fusion when he was young that was had worn out. He had arthritis. He was a finger typist. Touch, he wasn't a touch mm. typist like I am. He used to say, if I could type like you do, I'd finish a book in half the time. He was also meticulous about the research mm. and he would go through sheaves of stuff and be very demanding on the researchers and he had an instinct if something wasn't right. He'd say, that's not right, it doesn't feel right. And they'd say, but it is right, Bryce. He'd say, it's not, go back again, check mm. it again. And it just broke him in two if he found that there was something wrong. Like um, in one of his books, there was an ocean that was wrong. In another book, he had a camera in the story that hadn't been invented yet, a Hasselblad. He was horrified. Because the readers will tell you. They will tell you. They, they will tell you. Mm. Um, it's interesting um, because there is so much craft that goes into a profession like that. Like, you know, there's research, which is a craft in itself, I guess. Mm. There's the art of writing, which is, a, you know, a craft mm. in itself. And then there's the storytelling, isn't there? That's right. So it's all consuming. And it, he believed in a lot of and used a lot of dialogue, which I think made the work sing and not all writers can do that. And dialogue's very tricky. It's almost like writing a play. It has to be real and authentic and off the cuff. And um, that was a big feature of his of his writing style. Mm. We're, um, we're producing um, a, a podcast on how to write and we've covered dialogue and it's incredible. I mean, I think to write good dialogue, you've got to be a great listener as well. Yes, you do. You do. And the conversation's got to feel real. And I think that that is very difficult. And you're right. I think it's it's almost like writing a screenplay um, because you've just got to keep cutting it back, cutting it back. Mm. Um, because the way people don't speak for two or three minutes, they don't speak in long sentences. You're always... And, and I think the, the dialogue in a book has to ring true, otherwise it falls flat. It just doesn't work. And, yeah. But when it does work, it peels back another layer between the story, the writer and the reader. It makes it very present. And mm. as you would recall, Bryce did a lot of writing courses. He, caught, he taught at the Sydney Writers' Festival once. He did writing courses in Tasmania and six weeks before he died he ran a writing course called The Last Class and he said, I'll only do it if it's filmed so that my lessons about writing and how to write a book are preserved for mm. the next generation of writers, which he always wanted to champion. And I produced this little film called The Last Class where he says in the intro, I'm going to teach you how to write a book. Mm. Where's that available if some of our listeners want to uh, find Just it? through the Facebook page. People can send a message to the Bryce Courtney Facebook page. and um, Okay, yep. Yeah, send one to them. Okay, fantastic. Um, have you got it out up on YouTube? No. Um, there are bits of it on YouTube, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, so a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people have lost spouses, author spouses, writer spouses and whatever and, you know, um, and that's where the business lies and it finishes there. You're unique and in that you've kept the legacy going and I've seen that happen. Um, Katrina Strickland wrote a, do you know her? Mm. Yeah, she wrote a book on 
how the legacy of painters or artists lives on through their mm. partners. Mm. Um, and f- that's what you're doing, isn't it? Well, Talk to me about that. It's it's a big responsibility and... Um, it's a big estate. It's a big estate and you feel very honoured to be able to do it but it's it's something you have to learn how to do. And I, I said to Bryce, you know, what will I do? And he said, well, I want you to embrace the gift of life as I have and you'll have to beat the drum. And... So you talked about it. We did talk about it. Bryce was a very practical person. He talked about his funeral. He talked about everything he wanted there. He he gave me books of instructions. He was a very... He wasn't afraid of death. He didn't like the process of dying, but he wasn't afraid of death. He said, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to return to the earth and be humorous and things will grow from me. He picked where he... Uh, you know, where he went to die, where he went to be buried. Um... But I do my best and the publisher have also, Penguin Random House, have also been very supportive. And when I came to them and said, guess what, it's the 30th anniversary of the publication of The Power of One, they said, we really must do something. So we've, it's been wonderful that, you know, that they've done that. But Bryce always used to say that, because he wasn't a snob, you know, in any way, you know. He, he said, wasn't I, a snob. It was so refreshing. No. He said... I belong with the chocolates and the socks under the Christmas tree. And every second comment just about on the Facebook pages from the readers who have worked harder than me to preserve his legacies, they say, oh, we so miss having, you know, a book under the Christmas tree. Mm. And that's what isn't possible. If we could find a writer that had his voice, we could find, we could write another book, all Mm. of us. Mm. But how do you replace that voice? And how do you find a story? Mm. Um, and I never actually talked to Bryce about that. I know that has happened. Some writers' books are still coming out under Dig Larson's name. But Bryce did have a number of other books. He said he had about five still on in the in the queue. One about a general in Africa. He wanted to write about a book in the American South. Um, he became quite passionate about championing the cause of PTSD in veterans in Australia, which he thought had defined the post-war nation. Mm-hmm. And he felt so much for the families and particularly the women that carried the burden of looking after people, uh, often unable to earn a living and bringing up kids and everything else. Um, but he always found the human story, didn't he? He did. Mm. He did. You could never um, fudge anything with Bryce and say, I'm fine. Mm. He'd say, you're not fine. Mm. Tell me what's happening, what's really going on. Mm. There was no way to hide. No, that's <laughs> right. And I'm going to ask you, how are you? I think I'm good. I think I feel um, you never get over the loss of mm. someone that you love deeply and has completely changed your life and so inspired you. But I think you owe it to them to try and live well um, even though there are definitely moments of grief, grief and sadness. And why would you want to get over someone like Bryce Courtney? But I have wonderful friends, wonderful people in my life and projects that I'm involved with, like the Australian Himalayan Foundation I'm on the board of and championing Bryce's legacy. And I'm an incurable nomad. I still love travelling to wild places. And uh, so, and I have my health, so... yeah. 
I have nothing to complain about. Thank you so much for coming in to speak with us today. It's been a real privilege. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.